like everybody knows that Facebook is a great business. They know that Amazon's a great business. Why, why not? Why, why couldn't I see that 20 years ago, right? Hello everyone and welcome to the Investing City Podcast, where the goal is to get better at investing, business, and life. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It really means a lot. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. The following is presented for informational purposes only and is not investment advice. This information must not be relied upon in making any investment decision. Investing City cannot be held responsible for any type of loss incurred by applying any of the information presented. Furthermore, securities discussed in this podcast may be held by Investing City and members thereof. Thank you. On today's episode of the Investing City podcast, we have the opportunity to speak with Turner Novak. And this is a great conversation because Turner is just really resourceful. He's figured out how to break into VC, and now he runs venture capital at Gelt VC. And we talk all about his process and how he thinks about information and different businesses. So enjoy this one with Turner Novak. All right, on this episode of the Investing City podcast, we're super excited to have Turner Novak. So thanks so much for coming on, Turner. Yeah, Ryan, thanks for having me. Awesome. So why don't we start with a little bit of your background and kind of how you broke into venture capital since it's obviously super hard to do that. Yeah, I can give you kind of the really quick couple couple minute summary of kind of everything that kind of got me to where I'm at. So I was originally born in Canada, moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan with my parents when I was a kid. Uh, long story short, basically parents separated, single mom, went back to school full time to get a visa to stay in the U.S., worked a bunch of random jobs, uh, but she had her own small business. Uh, She's an artist. She designed custom wedding gowns. Um, long story short, you can't make very much money hand sewing custom wedding gowns in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where we lived. So I kind of got a front row seat to the struggling, creative, small business, like creative entrepreneurs, small business. Uh, she's really an artist, like a craftsperson. Um, meanwhile, growing up, I took programming and art and design classes in high school and was always really into tech stuff and kind of knew I wanted to do something somewhat related to that, but really didn't know what. Um, but just kind of saw my mom's business and it was always kind of fascinating to me. So I went to school for accounting and finance. I just wanted to dive right in and understand how business works. Uh, failed my first accounting class, uh, retook it and got an A and uh, ended up joining the investment club where I just kind of fell in love with investing. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. Buy low, sell high. You know, you got to study and understand businesses and you know, you're trying to, if you really want to be a good investor, you got to find things before other people can see them. Um, so I just thought it was fascinating and knew I wanted to do it. Um, and kind of the intersection of understanding technology and like emerging trends and sort of like treasure hunting and finding things for everybody else uh, and, and investing. It's, it's being a VC, but being in, in Michigan, in the middle of the Midwest, like nobody really talked about VC or really anything other than just investing in public stock. So that's kind of how I originally started. Uh, and I had been kind of positioning my resume to move to a big city. Um, I had, you know, joined the investment club, was like the president, did a bunch of internships, like was looking, you know, really good to kind of make the jump into a bigger city. Um, then 
ended up meeting my girlfriend, now wife, uh, on campus, and she had a job lined up. So we stayed in Grand Rapids. Uh, I got a job working at a bank. Uh, I was like community lending. So basically small businesses in the Midwest, you got a factory, you got stable revenue and cash flow, you need to take out a loan. Uh, you know, my job is basically decide if, if you could and how much, how much you could take out, you know, if what the interest rate should be, all that kind of stuff. So it was an awesome first job. I really learned a ton about just like fundamentally somebody comes to you with potentially like not even audited statements. Uh, and, and you're just trying to understand like what's the core earnings of the business and, you know, backing, adding stuff back, uh, you know, can they pay back their loan? So it was an awesome experience. I learned a ton, uh, but really always wanted to be an investor. Um, and it, it was just tough being in Grand Rapids, Michigan. There weren't a lot of options. Uh, so I got a job working at an endowment, which was probably one of the coolest jobs that I could have gotten. Uh, and basically our job was invest the endowment for this nonprofit that does cancer and Parkinson's research. Uh, it's a $1.6 billion portfolio. Uh, if you're familiar with how endowments work, they basically have a pool of assets and they want to make them last forever. So they're super diversified. They're in pretty much every single asset class. Um, and typically to do that, you, you stretch yourself way too thin if you do that yourself. So our job was basically just find people who are in, who are experts in investing in different asset classes, like venture capital, people who ran, you know, pub, long only public stock portfolios, people who did long plus short strategies, people who are investing in different types of fixed income or bonds, real estate, uh, et cetera. So I just kind of got to sit in on a lot of those conversations, meet a lot of those people, uh, people who were probably 10 times more knowledgeable than me uh, about investing and just got to learn a ton. Um, and I kind of reached a point where I was, I was like, man, I've always thought VC would be so cool. It's like the epicenter of everything I'm interested in. And I, I think I could do it. I just have to figure out how could I get a job in VC? Cause typically you um, went to, you know, kind of one of those larger schools, you worked at a big tech company, you done some angel investing, you had a track record. Uh, I had none of those things. And didn't really have the means of, of doing any of them either. Um, so I just started writing online, started tweeting on Twitter. On the time at Ryan initially, probably like two years ago, a year and a half ago, uh, and just started meeting people that way, just sharing my thoughts on things. Uh, and one of the things that I did specifically that really helped me making the jump into VC specifically was I did kind of a fantasy VC portfolio. Um, I kind of think about it. If you're thinking from a public stock perspective, a lot of people do like simulated portfolios or like a fake trading. Like, yeah, I think like different websites, you can, you know, fake invest a million bucks. I kind of did the same thing with startups and venture um, and kind of did a, with each one, I did kind of a one page investment memo and not like with public stocks, you can just go and look at their filings and get all this information. These were startups. So like there's no information on them. It was more so looking at the website, trying to find YouTube interviews with the founders or podcast interviews, uh, looking on like Reddit, people discussing the product, you know, complaining about things like, oh, this is a scam or, oh, I love this. Here's why. Um, so it was kind of like really nitty gritty research without actually knowing what was going on or how these companies were doing more so just high level business model. Do I think there could be a competitive advantage here, uh, et cetera. Uh, I just kind of threw that stuff on, out online and it helped me get a bunch of interviews. So I interviewed at a couple of different VEC firms in San Francisco. Um, and one of the firms I was talking to was open to me working remotely from Michigan. Uh, so I did that for a summer 
Um, and then someone else that I was talking to for probably about a year and a half. Um, we, you know, we hit it off really well. We had great chemistry. Um, and we kind of got to a point where he's like, Hey, like we really want you to come in and do all our early stage venture investing for us. They've got, and that's where I'm at right now at, at Gelt. Um, they've got about 1.3 billion in real estate assets. Um, and we've got this really small venture fund that we want you to invest for us. So, um, after talking for a while, I finally was like, you know what, this is, this is going to be the move. This is what I want to do. So I ended up joining them in October. Um, we've just kind of been investing, made I think 16 investments so far. Um, definitely an interesting time to be an early stage investor. Uh, it's probably one of the riskiest asset classes. And this is probably one of the times where, or at least it was a time a couple of months ago where everybody was risk off. Uh, so it's been really interesting and really fun so far. Uh, and that's, really high level. Maybe if you have any more questions, we could drill in on it more. That's kind of high level how I got to where I am. Yeah. So thanks so much for going through that. I actually totally remember reading through your fantasy VC portfolio and just thinking this is an amazing way to go about this. So just tell us a little bit about how you um, have started investing. So this guy comes to you and says, Hey, can you invest our small um, kind of growing VC fund, and then what are the next steps you take from there? Uh, yeah, so so being a uh, early stage investor, it's it, it has similarities to the public markets, but it's a lot different. Uh, you can't just open up your Robinhood <laughs> account or your E-Trade account and just type in a ticker and and buy the same stock that everybody else is buying. Uh, it's kind it's a it's an interesting combination of knowing what to pay attention to and proactively going out and looking for things um, but then also just kind of having a public persona that people are interested in talking to you when they're doing something uh, so I mean I, I think Ryan following me on Twitter you see like I just I tweet about a lot of different things there's kind of I'm kind of thinking about or interested in or paying attention to. Uh, and as, as a VC, you get a lot of people that are just like, Hey, I'm building Snapchat on the blockchain. Like, do, do you want to talk, you know, insert, insert crazy pitch here. Um, and that's kind of what I love about it is just people come to me with these ideas. I'm like, wow, I, like, I would have never thought about this, but this actually makes a ton of sense. And I can totally see the problem that you're solving. And like, I like, Holy cow, you have a ton of early traction, obviously, a ton of traction is very, uh, very subjective and a lot for a startup is a lot different than a public company. Um, especially when I'm investing, it's like, Oh, you have a hundred users or you have three customers. That's a lot different from kind of where, where you're investing in the public market. Um, but yeah, typically in terms of, of how I invest or make decisions, uh, it's, it's very subjective, but I think it ultimately comes down to do, I think this, this will actually work and, can I see this as a publicly traded company one day? Um, that's, that's sort of how I think about it. Uh, and there's a lot that goes into that, but you know, what's the initial kind of go to market strategy? How are they going to get their first customers? Um, how are they thinking about their customers in the market and, and how do they fit in? Um, is it something that, you know, this is a cool idea, but can somebody else just kind of copy and paste it into their existing portfolio of products, put it down their existing sales channels, et cetera. And, just kind of outcompete you that way. Um, so it's, it's in a way it's similar to how someone might think about public market investing. There's just less information to go on. Uh, and you, and you're, you're basically trying to 
predict competitive advantages before they're actually there, which is really hard. But I, I think it's it's more fun, in my opinion, than um, kind of what you do if you're a public market investor. Um, it's not for everyone and it's hard. And a lot of venture investors don't actually make money. Uh, I, I don't know what the averages are like as of today, but there's been a lot of studies that show, you know, half the funds in the industry don't even return the initial capital that was invested. Uh, and it's very much driven by power laws. So the best, the best startups and best companies drive most of the returns for indiv- an in- individual fund or an individual uh, VC firm. And then, the most of the returns in the industry are driven by just a couple funds and just a couple firms. Uh, so, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting and I'm still learning a ton about it because I've really only been doing it for about a year now. Uh, but it's awesome. And something that, you know, I think it just continues to evolve and it's one of those industries where it's just like investing. You got to constantly be learning and adapting and try and stay on top of everything that's going on. So I really enjoy it. Yeah. So this concept of, predicting competitive advantages is super interesting because this is kind of a thought I've been thinking about for a couple of years now, like companies that have a setup moat and everybody knows they have a moat can kind of be priced in that way. But really the companies that are growing their moat are really yeah. interesting. So I'd love to hear you kind of talk about what are some mental models or things you're looking for that kind of help you think through this idea of being able to predict competitive advantage. Yeah. So that's a, a really good point that, and that's kind of the way I think about investing is like, if, if there really is already a competitive advantages uh, advantage, everyone knows, like everybody knows that Facebook is a great business. They know that Amazon's a great business. Why, why not? Why, why couldn't I see that 20 years ago? Right. Um, so that's kind of what I'm trying to, to get to is basically trying to figure out what's going to be Facebook in 20 years, you know, a $400 billion publicly traded company. Uh, and first off, that's really hard and I'll probably be wrong most, most times that I'm doing that. Uh, but yeah, like I, I kind of think about it from the way of if they add another customer, does it make the business stronger? Does it make them more defensible against competitors? Um, if they add another user, does it add value for everybody else? Um, if they add new products to that, does it strengthen the value of all the other products that they offer? Um, and, you know, there's more defined words for this, like network effects, switching costs, et cetera. Uh, that's, that's ultimately kind of how I'm thinking about these things. Uh, and a lot of these times when you're, you, you're, you're looking at a deck from a, well, from a startup founder, um, a lot of these people are really good with technology, um, but they might not necessarily be pitching it as, hey, I'm going to be a publicly traded company. Here's my competitive advantage. You kind of have to sort of poke around and, and try to figure that out without them coming out and telling you that. Um, and sometimes they might not even like know what competitive advantage means. Uh, and it's not necessarily always a case that there has to be one right now, uh, but definitely a, the, there has to be a way to build one or, or, or the product that they're creating is going to have a competitive advantage just by the, the, way that they're building it and what they're making. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's a very subjective thing too. Uh, and a lot of times there's a lot of startups, they all look the same. And then in three years, one came out the winner because of one sort of nuanced thing that they were doing. If, if it was a marketplace, they were doing one thing differently on the supply side that no one else was doing. And that ended up being the thing that mattered. Um, or if it's an enterprise software tool, they had one feature that, 
didn't really seem like that big of a deal, but that was ultimately what customers cared about. And it gave them leverage to add additional, you know, users within the company or, you know, it, was, it helped them onboard like a new whole subset of the industry, uh, et cetera. So it's, it's very hard to predict competitive advantages before they're there, but that's kind of what I really like about investing. And that's, that's even my style in the public markets. Like I'm very much a, you know, I don't really care about the financials. Like, yeah, they're important and they have to matter someday, but it's more so, um, is there going to be a competitive advantage? And can I, can I try to find it before everybody else knows that it's there? Totally. So I would love to have like a real life example of kind of an investment that you've made and walking us through sort of the entire process of that. How'd you hear about it? How did you size the check? How did you uh, think about all of these things with competitive advantage valuation? So maybe we can just start with like how you heard about a company that you're interested in. Yeah. So I'll do one that's probably, it's, it's probably one of my favorites. It, so I found it. I honestly don't even remember how I found it. It was in one of my fantasy portfolios when I was first trying to make the jump into venture. Uh, I, I might may have just read it in like a TechCrunch article or something, or maybe in a newsletter that was announcing, you know, companies who'd raised money. Uh, yeah, to be honest, I don't remember how I found it. Uh, but it started as a marketplace for buying flowers. Uh, and there's a decent amount of these already exist. And there's a couple kind of legacy competitors, or there were, and they've gone bankrupt. So that kind of tells you the state of the industry. Uh, so th what they were doing is it's basically a, a website that you go on and you order flowers. Uh, there's competitors who fill them out of a warehouse or, you know, out of sort of, and they're, they're centrally located, um, you know, and they've got a corporate office that, you know, they, that's in New York and they kind of tell everybody in Boston, everyone in Chicago, everyone in LA, what to fulfill and what orders to stuff and send out to customers and to place on their websites and be delivered, et cetera. Um, and what she did with her website was instead of using these warehouses and, and kind of pushing products in the catalog down top down, that's what all the startup competitors are doing and also what all the incumbents did. She actually onboarded like local flower shops and just said, Hey, I'll let you guys pick whatever you want to put on the, on the marketplace and you can just create beautiful bouquets uh, and you can just list, you can choose the prices, you can take all the pictures, you can deliver them yourself. Uh, and so in my mind, I was like, huh, that's a really interesting way to do it because you it sort of in the age of Instagram, you're kind of bringing creativity and expression back into flowers, which are one of the, sort of like the most universal gift, really, if you think about it. Uh, and it's basically taking it from this corporate top-down sort of like non-creative form of, of creating flowers and actually letting local independent creatives do it themselves. Um, also driving traffic from their Instagram pages was kind of a strategy that they used. And that was an interesting business. I thought, huh, that's kind of cool. But one of the things that she was doing I thought was fascinating was she started creating software for those independent florists to run their their businesses on uh so in in one sentence it's basically like shopify or square for floral shops um and what she did was it basically gives them a website it gives them like a just internal software to do all their inventory all their to accept payments like a point of sale system for their shop 
Um, it gives them inventory ordering. They can design all their bouquets within the the software, and then when they when they uh, sell an order, they, like they automatically know they need to get more inventory in it. So I was like, huh, this basic this is basically just like a vertically integrated play on, on the floral industry. Uh, but then it also has this weird marketplace that she kind of uses as lead gen for all of her florists that are her customers. Um, so she kind of took this really weird approach of building the software business that didn't really make any sense. Um, and I just thought it was, it was really interesting because um, as you get more consumers on the consumer side of the marketplace, it makes it more attractive for the, uh, for the, the actual florals, the florists and the, the shops that are on there using the software. Um, you also get a lot of obvious benefits from if you're getting into inventory ordering, you can get into wholesale, stuff like that. Um, kind of the more that you add on there. Yeah, I just thought the business was fascinating when I first kind of talked to her. Yeah, it's super interesting. So talk a little bit about kind of the role of the founder. And so obviously a lot of VCs talk about how the founder, that's really all you have to kind of stake your investment on. How do you think about kind of sizing people up and what are some specific things that you look for? Yeah, I actually look at the market first and really it's more of the idea first and like the product and the company and business model first. Uh, because I think there's people who can have a really good resume and look good on paper and, you know, they're really impressive when you talk to them. Uh, but if you're competing in a market that has a lot of other people that are also like that, also a lot of other really smart founders that are doing very similar things, uh, it's just hard to compete. Uh, versus if you, if somebody, if you find somebody that's working on something that's just a little bit strange and kind of catches you off guard uh, and they have a really good sort of model thought out and you can tell they put a lot of thought into it. I kind of just assume that it's a good founder and like that the team is really strong. Uh, it's just, I kind of go backwards. So I kind of look at the, the idea in the market first and then kind of back into the good team, which I think having a really strong team there is, is important, but I usually don't lead with it. Uh, which, yeah, like you said, it's a little different from how other people do it. Um, I think that like my strategy of really looking at how can you build a competitive advantage there? That's ultimately how, what I use to lead my investment decisions. Kind of what I'm hearing is you're, you're really looking at the market and obviously the business model. And are there certain sort of top-down trends that you're looking for? And then it just so happens that this company comes along and really fits your idea of like thesis-driven versus bottoms-up. How do you think about the differences between those two? Yeah, I would definitely say I'm more of a bottoms up. Uh, I think it's important to have sort of just broad general knowledge of industries and, and markets uh, just because it, it helps you understand these different startup ideas better. Uh, like if somebody came to me and was pitching, you know, a new product for the garbage collection industry, that's not something I know a lot about. Uh, but let's just say I'd been doing some reading on the market and somebody pitched me the idea, I might be able to actually see like, wow, that's actually a really good idea because of a couple things I know about the industry and the way that they, the insights they had were like way better and it built on what I already knew versus if I didn't know anything about it, I might just say, yeah, I don't get this. Like this doesn't make any sense to me. 
so I definitely do try to just have a general broad framework to, to understand sort of different really high level industries. Uh, and I mean, it, I, I think there's, there's no, there's two ways to do it. You can either go bottoms up or, or sort of top down. Uh, I just tend to find that when you go top down, there's a lot of other people that have the same theses and everyone's kind of thinking the same way uh, versus if you really go bottoms up and just try to find interesting ideas and interesting models and people that are doing things that sort of, they sort of like haven't hit the, the, the blog posts yet, or, you know, it's kind of finding things like finding competitive advantages before other people have found them. Like if you can find an interesting idea before anyone else knows it's an interesting idea, uh, I just think that there's a lot more opportunities there. And, and that's more fun and exciting too, I think, is trying to find stuff that, you know, nobody else knows about yet. It's kind of like treasure hunting. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's important to do both, but I would definitely say I'd, I'd tilt a lot more on the bottoms up um, just because it allows you to like keep an open mind when you go into a conversation with someone and, and maybe get caught off guard with something that's actually, you know, a pretty cool idea that in a cool way of sort of attacking a market that, you know, I've never thought of before myself. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. So talk a little bit about how you sort of think about um, like this, this idea of keeping an open mind, because you even mentioned it, um, a lot of the flower incumbents sort of went bankrupt. And so how did you sort of not let yourself get pigeonholed into that? How did you see beyond that? Uh, well, I, I think the software component was what really made me interested. Uh, like, it, like I said, it, it was kind of one of those things was like, huh, that's a cool way of doing it. I'm like, you know, in my mind, I'm like, yeah, I probably would never invest in something like this. But when I saw the whole idea of, oh, you're actually going to create software for this random overlooked, like sort of like working class creative almost like flower shop operators like it's if you if you look at i think globally it's like a, a 111 billion dollar market um and if you kind of like click and drag your spreadsheet out you know five to 15 years there's a lot of opportunities to do a lot of different things in that industry uh different investments maybe maybe only one um so you do have to definitely be careful about making a decision like that um but yeah i just i just kind of saw that you know I thought that the opportunity to kind of move into different parts of the industry using software that has never existed before. I just thought that there was a lot of opportunities there that, you know, a lot of, a lot of people might look at it and say, you know, the contract values are too small or the flower industry is really difficult and tough. Um, but I kind of looked at it as more of an opportunity to kind of create new revenue that hadn't existed before and create a new business that didn't exist yet. Um, so that's kind of how I thought about it and how I got comfortable with it. And the founder was really impressive, of course. Like it, it was following, following my model of, you know, it's a cool idea. I talked to him. I was like, oh, wow, she's pretty awesome. Um, so it, it, that definitely all kind of played a part in, in how I made the decision. And every investment's different. There's different reasons that you like different ones um, if you're a VC because in, in, in most of these venture investments, um, there's maybe a little bit of data. There's a nice chart of, one kpi like users or you know bookings or something that you know the chart looks really good but in reality if you're looking at their actual gap financials it looks really ugly uh so it can be it can be tough to sometimes come to these 
decisions. And, uh, you know, a lot of times there's a lot of them too. A lot of them kind of in the same entry or same market. Um, so you kind of look to see these little nuances between all these different ideas and which is going to be the one that ultimately plays out. And you're, as a VC, you're probably going to end up making the wrong call anyways. So it's, it's kind of, it's kind of how to get, how to get comfortable with everything is, you know, you can never be 100% right. You just kind of look at getting like, okay, this, this could work. I feel good about it. I'm going to write the check and kind of sign up to be on board and, and be along for the ride for the next 10 years. Yeah. So it's, thanks for going through that. And I think it's especially interesting with sort of a vertical with the flower marketplace. And so talk a little bit about the verticalization of a market versus something broad like Shopify and are there advantages and disadvantages to both? And just talk a little bit about that. It seems like a trend. Yeah, there's definitely advantages to both. I think when you go really horizontal, it's harder to kind of further penetrate other lines of revenue within your customers. And if you go super vertical, uh, like let's say you, you're creating, I'm making this up, but let's say you're creating like software for a auto repair shop and that's all you do, you know, you can eventually get into, you know, in the beginning, you're a way for them to, you know, book their clients when they check into the, to get their car repaired. But then you, you kind of turn it into a CRM, like a, like a sales force for auto. Uh, and you get into helping them with their marketing. And then you're like, hey, you know, we've got all your customers on here. We know what kind of stuff you're doing. Why don't we let you do some, we'll take care of your inventory. And we'll help you order some stuff and we'll save you time there. Uh, and then you kind of say, oh, you know, I noticed you're spending a lot on inventory. Why don't we help you finance some of that? And obviously you can make some money there. Uh, so I, I just think when you go super vertical, it gives you an opportunity to just kind of deepen the relationships you have with your customers versus if you're super vertical or sorry, super horizontal, like we'll say, for example, Microsoft Excel, like Microsoft Office, they've got hundreds of millions of, of users, but it's pretty broad and you're not seeing Microsoft Excel come out and make, you know, these really specialized tools for any particular industries. and it works with their model and what they're doing, but there, there's probably going to be people who come out and make spreadsheets that are verticalized and specialized for an industry. And then there are opportunities to make more money doing things other than just giving them basic software to use and helping them do a job. You kind of think of adjacent jobs that business does and, and can we start to help fulfill those jobs too? So yeah, there's trade-offs. I don't think there's any right or wrong way to do it. I think right now vertical software is super uh, sexy in terms of, you know, investor interest, um, which, which makes sense. There's, we're kind of, you know, software is, is, is eating the world per se, and it's kind of gone from being really horizontal and some of those opportunities are gone. And now people are looking for stuff that, um, you know, solves workflows for one specific industry. Um, so I think it's kind of just a natural progression of the market. And uh, I don't really know what comes next and which one's better. But I think right now there's a lot more opportunities in vertical software just because it's a newer thing that people in businesses have been able to use, um, especially with like the proliferation of mobile, you know, an industry like an auto repair shop. The mechanics now, they all have their phones on them while they're working. So they can use this software versus 10 years ago, you know, mechanics didn't really use software to the same extent that they did now. Um, so I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's different with every industry. 
Um, and I think that, yeah, verticals probably a little, there's probably more opportunities there right now. If I wasn't, you know, really talking about high level, thinking about kind of the whole space. Another thing that you've been talking about is kind of finding these opportunities earlier than other people. And so are there different resources, different websites, different things that you use in order to get information? Because it it really seems like filtering information is a really undervalued part of being an investor. So just talk a little bit about your sources and how you filter information. Yeah, I think in, in VC, like I said, you can't just open up a website or an app and like type in the ticker that you want to buy. It's usually some, you're usually finding out about an investment through another person or proactively really going out and looking for it. Uh, So uh, typically for investors, a lot of people who are building a product or building a startup, they might know they might know some VCs that they say, Hey, I'm, I'm working on this. You know, I'm interested in raising some money. Um, they also might be talking to their friends and they might say, Hey, roommate, you know, I'm raising money for my startup. Do you know of any people I should talk to? Um, or they follow you on Twitter and they, they say, Hey, I've been following you on Twitter for a while, or I, I subscribed to your newsletter or I've watched your YouTube videos on building a startup which I, I know nothing about. I've never done that before. Um, and they, they reach out to you that way or get a hold of you that way. Um, that, that's definitely probably one of the biggest ways that most VCs find things is basically just other people. Um, a lot of VCs talk about it like deal flow. Like what kind of deal flow do you have? What kind of investment opportunities are you seeing? Uh, and then for me, I, I find a lot on Twitter. I just honestly just like follow a lot of people and just kind of see something like, huh, this this thing that this person's talking about, you know, they're making, you know, software for, you know, hosting podcasts on and like running a and growing a podcasting business. This looks interesting. You can reach out to them. Uh, or you're on Reddit and you're reading like the fantasy football subreddit and somebody mentions this cool fantasy football app that they just started using. I'll be like, huh, this looks cool. Um, there's typically websites you can like look and see like if a startup's raised money or not. So I'll typically do that. Um, try to figure out who the founder is of the company and try to reach out or see if anyone that I know knows them that can maybe introduce me to them and say, Hey, Turner's a good guy, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You should talk to them. Uh, Cause a lot of founders are really busy and a lot of VCs will, you know, be messaging them trying to get on their calendar, um, especially if what they're doing is really interesting. Um, so it's kind of one of the things you, you kind of got to figure out how you stand out as a, as a venture investor. I think uh, this is kind of a, a meme in ventures. Like it's the only asset class where the asset chooses the investor. I don't even know if that's true, if it's the only one, but it's definitely true in the sense of like, like you, like you have to convince someone to give you their wiring instructions for their bank account and like let you wire in money to their, to make an investment. Uh, so there's that, that's definitely a, uh, a whole part of venture that makes it just a little bit different than other asset classes. It's kind of why you see a lot of VCs be very public about what they're doing. Um, kind of compare, I mean, you kind of see some hedge funds, hedge fund guys do the same thing. We're going to CNBC and, you know, talk their book up. Um, but VCs, it's like, yeah, I was an early investor in Uber. Like I'm a, you know, I'm like, I've got the Midas touch, like come talk to me about what you're doing. Like, so that's, uh, that's sort of a whole nuance of the, the VC, uh, community that uh, it kind of explains a lot of the behavior, um, and and then too, I think like I'll find stuff just 
in, in general, like I'll be reading an article or like reading a newsletter or, you know, on different, like a website like Product Hunt where people post about their new products they're building. Um, there's a lot of different ways. I think you just have to be really open and really creative in like how you just, how you use your time and like how you just like browse and interact with the world and just find different opportunities. Uh, I think there's, there's definitely, there's one where I, uh, it was someone that I met in like a Slack community, just like a group talking about different FinTech products. And uh, after I've been talking to him for, you know, a couple months, he was starting a startup and I was like, Oh, cool. This is, this is really cool. Like I'll, I'll invest. Um, so there's just different ways to meet people and there's no really right way to do it. It's just about being, especially in, in 2020, I think it's about just being good at the internet and like understanding how it works and being able to take advantage of that to find uh, cool things that people are working on and kind of like getting the opportunity to invest. So switching gears a little bit, one of the first things that really stood out about you was your really in-depth analysis on Snapchat. And I, I want to talk about that a little bit for two reasons. One, I think um, it's just interesting. And then two, I think, um, like, how do you view public companies? Are you looking at them constantly to understand the bigger trends that will trickle down into VC? Or just talk a little bit about Snapchat and your views on public companies. Yeah, I think like, first off in general, when I'm investing in a startup, I will typically always if I haven't already, or if I'm not familiar, I'll try to find the, like the annual report, the investor materials for the publicly traded companies and see what they're talking about. And if, if the public company is like, we are literally doing exactly what this startup is doing, or, or, or you know, I can tell just by reading it, it's like the, like the startup is going to have trouble competing against these guys. It definitely affects how I, how I think about the opportunity. Um, it definitely doesn't make me say no or turn me away, but you know, you have to kind of consider what the incumbents are doing. Um, but I think in general, like the best strat, like a really good strategy for being a good VC is finding and investing in things that will become massive, like world changing companies that like define how people live and do business. Um, and a lot of people say like investing in platforms or aggregators, et cetera. Um, and you just kind of look at the companies that, you know, irrespective of where their valuations are at right now, just companies like, like a Zoom, it's basically changed the way that people communicate. A company like Facebook, it's literally people use it every single day. People build, have built companies on it. There are thousands of consumer brands that acquire their customers entirely on Facebook and Instagram. Um, so you're kind of looking for opportunities to invest in companies that are, are trying to create that. Um, and that's another thing like we've talked about, it's like pretty open-ended, like there's no real way to actually be good at that. It's a, just an iterative learning process. Uh, and so kind of in terms of Snap, like I've always just thought that Snap was kind of like the sleeping platform that people weren't really appreciating yet. I think if like at a really high level, if you just kind of like step back and compare Snap with something like Instagram, uh, their user bases in the US, which is where Instagram and Facebook makes the majority of their money. If you actually like break down, you know, ARPU and average revenue per user between all the different markets, they make most of their money, like almost all their revenue and the majority of their cash flow is coming from the US, the UK, France, et cetera. And if you actually compare sort of the user bases of Instagram and Snapchat, 
in all those really sort of like high LTV, high valued user markets, it's pretty similar. Um, and the time that's spent inside of the apps by those users is pretty similar too. Uh, so just kind of at a high level, Instagram did 19 billion in revenue in 2019 uh, and Snap did about 1.9 billion over the last four quarters. They just reported their earnings earlier this week. Uh, but really kind of comparing it, Snap's like 10, 10x smaller than Instagram in terms of the revenue they're doing. But the sort of like time that people are spending and the, the time that valuable users are spending in the apps is pretty similar. So even if you just assume that, you know, maybe Snap has worse data than Instagram because it's not Facebook, uh, and maybe you assume that they're sort of like their advertisers are just they're less effective. They'll never be able to charge exactly the same pricing. Um, but if you really look at sort of the, the app and how it works and the business model, I mean, I think a higher percentage of the usage on Snap is actually monetizable versus Instagram um, in terms of they've got things like games, the camera lenses, um, the Snap map. Um, which obviously some of those make money now or will make money in the future. And then they have a premium content business that if you, if you haven't really dug into it before, it's, it's basically like premium content by ESPN you can watch in the Snapchat app. And it's not relying on influencers like Kylie Jenner, et cetera, that are creating content on Instagram and may go to may go somewhere else if the audience is there. Um, so if you really look at, if you, if you just assume, okay, Instagram did 19 billion in revenue in 2019 and it could probably do a lot more than that. But let's just assume that Snap can get from 1.9 to 19 billion. Uh, it's really only trading at like one and a half times it's fully baked sales. Uh, and of, of course, maybe the, the, the price of revenue, like obviously we're talking about something that's way in the future, you know, it's probably a couple of years away, like five, 10 years away from Snap getting to that point. Uh, but it just seems like nobody's really counting on them being able to do that. I think if you're, if you're going to invest in snap right now, it's kind of a question of are they flat slash using losers users, or do they actually keep increasing and do they get 500 million or a billion users? Um, and they've kind of proven that over the last couple quarters that, Hey, we're not actually shrinking. Um, a lot of people kind of perceived them as being beat by Instagram when in, I think that was part of it, but in reality, their Android app was really bad. Um, and if you look at their user base, it's predominantly in the U.S. in markets where people use iPhones. And then it was non-existent in markets where people use Android phones. Um, and if you kind of think of a social network, you know, you've got network effects, people sending messages back and forth. It's kind of hard to build a social network if half of your network is I, is Android users and they their app doesn't work properly. They just, they don't use it. They're not going to participate in that network. So they've just kind of been able to reactivate the Android users and get them back using it again over the last couple quarters. And I think they have a really long runway now in terms of just adding users. And I think the stock's finally going to start trading up and trending long-term uh, in terms of like how investors perceive it because of the user growth. Uh, and then additionally, when you really think of Snap and what they're doing, it's if you, if you kind of look at all the different pieces of the app, they're basically building an ecosystem around the camera and, you know, I don't know when this is going to happen, if it's in five years or 20 years, but a lot of people kind of assume, and it's kind of like common knowledge that sort of AR glasses are going to be the next computing platform. We just don't know when. Um, but currently in 2020, Snap has a business model around monetizing camera usage and people using and building on top of their camera. I think they had, they did something 
close to a billion in revenue. It may be just closer to 500 million. They haven't actually disclosed this, but people have estimated that they've done between 500 million and a billion dollars in revenue just on augmented reality advertising. Uh, and they've also had 165,000 unique augmented reality lenses that were created by developers on their Snapchat camera in Q4 of, or sorry, Q1 of this year. Um, so they basically got an ecosystem and a business model that works in AR already. Uh, and kind of thinking it in another way, uh, you know, I think Snap was, I, I don't know what they're actually trading at right this minute, but they've been about 20 billion as of maybe they're way more than that after earnings. But, you know, Snap was worth about 20 billion and doing about 500 million in revenue, in AR revenue, not anything else. And Magic Leap was valued at 10 billion basically promising the same thing, but had sold like a couple thousand headsets, but like didn't actually have a business model or any kind of, you know, competitive uh, ecosystem being built. Um, so it was just like another interesting comp where I'm just like, you know, first off, I just think the stock is insanely misunderstood. Um, but then also as a VC, I'm like, you know, this is a, a budding platform that people are going to be able to build on. It's going to be just like Facebook in terms of people literally being able to buy millions of dollars in ads to grow their own business and, and kind of make money on. And that's kind of what, in, in terms of being a platform, that's kind of what you want to see is can other people make money and, and have their own businesses on, on your own, on your business. Yeah. Thanks so much for going into that really interesting perspective on snap. And I know you've got to run, but just real quickly, are there any daily habits, like one or two things that you do every day that have really contributed to where you are today? Um, probably check Twitter. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good answer to that question. Uh, but yeah, that's probably the, the one that's been really helpful for me. Love it. <laughs> yeah. So thanks so much for um, coming on Turner. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Investing City podcast. It really means the world to us. And before you go, we have a proposition. So please leave a review on iTunes. It just would help us out so much. And if you do so, just email us. I left a review and we'll give you a gift. That's right. We'll give you a gift if you leave a review. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you.